You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is the writer Richard K. Morgan. Um, Richard is the author of a a number of different uh, books. Many of them are uh, sci-fi, um, and he has won multiple um, awards. And I'm going to talk to him today about his novel, Altered Carbon, which um, was uh, published in it was published in 2003 when it won a, it was a New York Times notable book and won the Philip K Dick award and i actually um uh i haven't read any of the of richard's other novels so i have sort of begun the, the latest novel which is called thin air and about life on mars but um altered carbon is one of is probably among my 10 or dozen favorite sci-fi novels. And that's really saying something because I have read a lot of sci-fi novels. I'm a real aficionado of the genre. And I've also written some sci-fi short stories, which I'll probably republish on my Substack for those of you who are subscribers. Um, but uh, um, Altered Carbon is an absolutely uh, fantastic um representation of the genre. There's also a Netflix series um, based upon it, a 10-episode Netflix series, um, of which I wasn't a huge fan, but uh, it was interesting to see the differences between the book and the series. There is a a new Netflix series coming based on the sequels, um, which are called Broken Angels and Woken Furies. And Richard's background was as a um, teacher of English as a second language, and uh, until um, he wrote Altered Carbon and was kind of discovered and has then, since then, given up the day job and become a full-time writer. I really enjoyed the About section on your your, um, website, by the way, Richard. Um, Thank you. The story you tell is much more, (laughs) it's much more entertaining than most About sections. So I will link to that and recommend people read it. Thank you so much for joining me. And can I just say thank you for such a fulsome um, in- introduction? Uh, it's very kind of you. Uh, I, I believe actually that Alter Carbon was published in two thousand and two, not two thousand and three. Uh, oh, okay. It's a long time ago now, so I, I, I can't be sure myself I, without going to the shelf and checking. Uh, but I believe it. Ca- it could be that it came out two thousand and two in the UK, and then the US edition was 2003. And I think what happened was it won the Philip K. Dick Award for 2003. Uh, right. That, and that was for the American edition. So, so yeah, I mean, who knows? But what's in a year? It makes no time. <laughs> <laughs> it all for a very long time yeah. now. It, it, 
I, I'm sorry, it must feel like a long time ago to you now. And one reason I haven't read your other books, I have to confess, is that my all-time favorite sci-fi novel is Ursula Le Guin's um, The Left Hand of Darkness. Oh, good pick, yeah. I, I think that's an absolutely magical novel, but I haven't enjoyed Le Guin's other writing. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of done the same thing with um, A Prayer for Owen Meany, that if I <laughs> really love a book, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about this, yeah. I'm reluctant to read other things the writer has written in case they don't live up to my sort of already very high expectations. So I have actually read Altered Carbon twice, but I haven't read any author of your works. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's yeah, to be honest with you, the imprint it made is such that it's very hard for anything else I've written to to carry the same weight culturally. Uh, but that's fine. I mean, you know, the, you, I was very lucky to have a, a big splash right at the start. It's one of the reasons I was able to go full-time so quickly so i'm 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 very sanguine about that uh really really not not concerned uh i like to think my style has got better i've become better craftsman over the years i mean it's been 20 years so you know you would hope so uh but yeah you know it was my first it was it was i poured all of the passion that i had into it They, they there's a saying where they say you know, you get your whole life to write your first novel and then you get one year to write your second. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in the, in many ways, yes, it, it's always going to be a very special, magical novel to me because, yeah, it was ev- the summation of everything I had read and done and lived up to that, the point that I wrote it. Um, and, yeah, that, that I think carries a weight of its own, so fair enough, you know. So I would like to begin by just reading a... a um short passage from your novel and uh, so you talk about in this passage you talk about the um, a few little uh, glossary notes before I begin and um, by the way if you haven't read this novel there may be some uh, unavoidable I think there are going to be some unavoidable um, minor spoilers uh, in this episode so please be forewarned. Uh, so a couple of a couple of notes you talk about um, the Kawaharis, Haras, and Bancrofts of this world. So those are um, very wealthy and powerful people um, who um, have have been alive for many centuries, swapping uh, continuously into new clones of their of their bodies. Um, and we'll talk probably a little bit more about that later. But very ancient and powerful um, figures, and uh, Kel um, is an inspirational, um, as a revolutionary turned philosopher, um, a kind of Mahatma Gandhi of Harlan's world, which is where your protagonist Takeshi Kovacs is from. And at this point, he is um, he's on a yacht. I think that's all we need to know. Yes, <laughs> nice. that'll cover against the spoilers. That's very nice. <laughs> um, out in the middle of a seemingly endless ocean, cocooned in the high-tech safety of the yacht, it was easy to believe you could hide from the Kawaharas and Bancrofts of this world. But that kind of hiding died centuries ago. If they want you, a youngish Kel had once written of the Harlan's world-ruling estate, elite, Sooner or later, they'll scoop you up off the globe like specks of interesting dust off a Martian artefact. Cross the gulf between the stars and they can come after you. 
go into centuries of storage, and they'll be there waiting for you, clone new when you re-sleeve. They are what we once dreamt of as gods, mythical agents of destiny, as inescapable as death, that poor old peasant labourer bent over his scythe no longer is. Poor death, no match for the mighty altered carbon technologies of data storage and retrieval arrayed against him. Once we lived in terror of his arrival. Now we flirt outrageously with his sombre dignity, and beings like these won't even let him in the tradesman's entrance. I grimaced. Compared to Kawahara, death was a three-bout pushover. Suppose you know someone a long time ago. You share things, drink deeply of each other. Then you drift apart. Life takes you in different directions. The bonds are not strong enough. Or maybe you get torn apart by external circumstance. Years later, you meet that person again in the same sleeve and you go through it all over again. What's the attraction? Is this the same person? They probably have the same name, the same approximate physical appearance. But does that make them the same? And if not, does that make the things that have changed unimportant or peripheral? People change, but how much? As a child, I believed there was an essential person, a sort of core personality around which the surface factors could evolve and change without damaging the integrity of who you were. Later, I started to see that this was an error of perception caused by the metaphors we were used to framing ourselves in. What I thought of as personality was no more than the passing shape of one of the waves in front of me, or slowing it down to more human speed, the shape of a sand dune, form in response to stimulus, wind, gravity, upbringing, gene blueprinting, all subject to erosion and change. The only way to beat that was to go on stack forever, just as a primitive sextant functions on the illusion that the sun and stars rotate around the planet we are standing on. Our senses give us the illusion of stability in the universe, and we accept it, because without that acceptance, nothing can be done. But the fact that a sextant will let you navigate accurately across an ocean does not mean that the sun and stars do rotate around us. For all that we have done as a civilization, as individuals, the universe is not stable, nor is any single thing within it. Stars consume themselves. The universe itself rushes apart, and we ourselves are composed of matter in constant flux. Colonies of cells in temporary lines, replicating and decaying, and housed within an incandescent cloud of electrical impulse and precariously stacked carbon code memory. This is reality. This is self-knowledge. And the perception of it will, of course, make you dizzy. All and anything you achieve as an envoy must be based on the understanding that there is nothing but flux. Anything you wish to even perceive as an envoy, let alone create or achieve, must be carved out of that flux. If you couldn't even meet the same person twice in one lifetime, in one sleeve, what did that say about all the families and friends waiting in Download Central for someone they once knew to peer out through the eyes of a stranger? 
How could that even be close to the same person? And where did that leave a woman consumed with passion for a stranger wearing the, a body she once loved? Was that closer or further away? Okay. Um. <laughs> nice choice. Thank you. Could you say a bit, uh, uh, give a little bit of explanation of that passage um, uh, of the concept of resleeving and um, download central? And these are these are premises that kind of underlie the the novel. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the, the the novel is based on a premise that at some point in the future humans learn to digitize consciousness. That's to say, they find a way to record the current state of somebody's somebody's self their consciousness if you like uh and that can then be stored as a copy uh you can once you've digitized it obviously then it becomes susceptible to all sorts of things you can store it you can freight it you can transmit it from place to place and ultimately you can load it in and out of bodies so uh, i mean you can run it on a mainframe as well in a simulation as a virtual version of the person but what you can also do is i say you can transfer it from one body to another and this, this digital self is recorded in something called a stack, which is like a little black box recorder that sits at the base of the skull. So if you're killed in some in a way that doesn't totally destroy, vaporize you, then the stack can be recovered just the way the black box is recovered from a crashed airliner. And your personality is recorded in there. The last you, the last edition of you before you died, is inside that box. And that can then be retrieved loaded into a new body if you've got the insurance to cover it uh, or it can be stored somewhere until such time as someone decides to bring you out and put you back in a body or I say it can be run on a mainframe uh, as part of a simulation uh, and it can be transmitted long distances instantaneously because it's it, it's effectively um, digital data rather than actually having any mass so what this does obviously the, the general thing that this does is it confers effective immortality on the human race but as to who gets to access that immortality, that's a slightly more complicated issue. Yeah, you talk about, um, and you have kind of two different classes of people. Um, okay, there are there are going to be spoilers here, but I think a lot of people have read the novel or or watched the uh, uh, Netflix series. So if yeah. you if you haven't read the novel, please stop listening now. Bookmark <laughs> this. Go and read the novel, and come back after you've read it. Um, it's a it's a wonderful read. In fact, um, sorry, to, I'm going to digress for a moment just to say that one of the things that really struck me, um, I was, as I often do, alternating between reading it on my Kindle and listening on Audible. Um, and um, because I uh, I usually run first thing in the mornings and I listen to the I listen to an audio book at that time, and. Um, I usually find it quite, um, I'm not a person who finds it terribly easy to visualize things in novels. Um, I enjoy, I really enjoy lush descriptions because I, I luxuriate in the kind of language that's used, but I often find it very difficult to create a really detailed visual image. And I find myself substituting my own kind of approximate fantasy for the act the actual thing that's being precisely described. And this is especially true if I'm listening to audiobooks because it is it is just that bit harder to focus when you're listening to an audiobook. Um, but there is no way that running would be bearable without them. Um, but I 
especially, you know, I'm running in, in Epping Forest, typically, and it's a completely different environment from the environment of the book. But in your case, you are an incredibly um, precise describer. Um, and I, um, as, I'm sorry, I've digressed completely now. This happens when you're in your 50s. Um, but I wanted to ask, whilst I remember to ask it, do you have a very visual imagination? And when you're writing, are you envisaging um, scenes? Because I think it's one of the most precise, precisely visually evocative novels I've read ever. You're extremely good at, uh, at conjuring up the kind of absolute cinematographic um, visual experience in, in the reader's mind. Wow. Well, that is a, a super large compliment, but I will take it. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think basically, I think anyone who's read my stuff would be very, would, would be able to see quite clearly that I'm, I'm extremely cinematically influenced. I mean, I'm a huge cinema, cinema buff. I love cinema in all its shape and form. And so, yeah, I guess that when it comes to the senses, I would say that my primary sense is always visual. And I do, in my mind, have a fairly strong sense of what Im the images are of, of what's, what, you know, the story that's being told. Um, I've, I, what I've done over, over the years is, is, is kind of work at bringing in other senses because you want to try and provide other senses as well. So, so smell is one that I think very often people tend to forget when they're writing and I so I work quite hard at bringing in other other senses but yes visuals visual sensation is is very much the mainstay of 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 my um my writing toolkit I would say uh, as to precision of description it's interesting because I I've always felt that I'm quite an impressionistic describer uh I try and and, and I'm also very I'm a big fan of of uh, economy so you know never use 10 words well five will do uh so I will try to give the reader a, a snap impression of what they're looking at without trying to define too many of the details. If you, if you read people from, from old school uh, styles, like I mean, someone like Raymond Chandler, who I'm a big fan of, but he does tend to walk, you know, his character will walk into a room and he'll start in the top left corner and describe to you everything that's in the room, you know, the furniture, what's on the walls, uh, you know, the, the light falling in through the window, the whole thing. And it's it's quite exhaustive because obviously he was writing at a time when cinema was only really starting to take a grip on the public imagination, I think. And and so his way of describing was 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 much more old school. Now, obviously, we live in a very, very cinematic age and what I find is that so much of so much of what we see is shorthanded. Uh, you can actually throw somebody a, a grab bag of two or three references, and they'll they'll pick it up and they'll run with it. Uh, so then that's what I try and do. I, I, I you know rather than huge amount of detail, what I try and give people is a flash impression. You know, you, this is what you're looking at. Bang, bang, bang. Three points of reference, maybe. And then run with that and see where it goes. And later on in the scene, I mean, you may then pull something out of that and, and go to town on it to describe it more. Uh, but yes, I mean, to wrap this up and <laughs> give you a straight, simple answer. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, visual visual impact is a very big part of what I what I try to do. Yeah, it's. I think the kind of. I mean, there's there are sort of two kinds of approach to this. Traditional approaches in in novels. There, there's a kind of Dickensian approach, as you said, yeah. which is very exhaustive, and where the kind of the the local color, the description itself, has um, 
uh, is is sort of attempts to be as as detail as as kind of panoramic as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, there are also many many descriptions of the physical appearance of of characters. Yes. Um, and then there's a kind of Jane Austen approach in which almost nothing visual is described. Because it's not impo- the specifics of how things look are not important, and that's you know the extreme of that you can find in Lauren Stern's novel Tristram Shandy, where he says, um, uh, he he says, what did the heroine look like? And he says, here, reader, here's a blank page, and you turn over and there's an actual blank page in the yeah. in the book, and yeah. he says, pick up a pencil and draw her for her se- for yourself as like your mistress as your imagination can manage and as unlike your wife as your conscience will let you. <laughs> um, so um, there is this sort of, um, it's, it's not always necessary to be able to visualize things or you can, you know, visualize things putting in your own, you can put in Darcy looking however you want him to look and you yeah. can put in Pemberley looking like a stately home, but more or less like any stately home that you've seen and you have in your memory gonna, banks. Exactly. It's exactly that. It's like, what have people got to work with? Give them, give them a line to that and they will, they will do the rest of the work themselves. No, no, I was going to say, you said you started reading um, Thin Air. And again, one of the things there with the protagonist is that you, I don't give you a lot of detail on what he looks like. Um, you know, in, in, in Altered Carbon, the guy, you know, Kovacs looks in the mirror at the beginning of the book and describes quite in quite detailed fashion what the body is that he's wearing, uh, and that's a fun thing to do in especially in noir fiction. I think to to look in the mirror. Characters are always looking at themselves. Um, whereas in Thin Air, you don't you get you, you're given a very impressionistic sense of it, and I think there's a line in the first chapter where he's he's talking about what the people he's walking past will will think and he says something like never mind this big guy with the spoil your night face he's nothing to do with you and mm. and it's literally impressionistic it's like all you so you all you know about a veil in thin air is he's big and you probably don't want to fuck with him and that's it yeah. you know? and yeah. and i expect the you know the reader will then run with that um, and to the extent that I had one one interviewer when the book came out, and she said to me, "I get the impression that this guy is, you know, is black. Is that right?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. He's he's he is from a Pacific Islander stroke Ab- Australian Aboriginal background, uh, but how much of that, you know, what the constituent parts are of that, I couldn't tell you. And I have a very rough idea of what he looks like because I drew him. I drew on a character in a movie that I really enjoyed, uh, but uh, you know." It's up to the reader to run with that. What's important is is how he impinges on you. So if you walked into the room, what would you feel? And and I think as my styles developed over the years, that's it's become far more important to me what people feel about a character or a building or a, a scene than it is what they can actually visually decode with, with, with detail. Uh, so that's one way in which my style has probably shifted over time. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, maybe I I got the sense that the characters, the physical appearance of the characters in Altered Carbon was not rendered in as much detail as the kind of um, settings and actions. Uh Um, Like the old police station, um, for example, um, is uh, described in a way that I found, I felt as though 
it's not it's not a kind of panoramic it's not a scanning from the top corner to the bottom um but there is an awful lot of very detailed kind of visual information there and also about the the specifics of characters actions mm-hmm. are very precisely described i think part of that is that so altered carbon is a is a kind of a i guess it's a sci-fi who done it um and in the in the tradition of a kind of who done it um you know that you have to pay attention to every detail because any detail any specific visual detail may give you a clue to the um to who the who the murderer is uh to what actually happened and why yeah. um and in altered carbon the why is more important than the who um but um that's it's kind of one of the it's one of the things that i think the who done it genre um a lot, one of the tools that it gives you as a writer I and mean, when you're reading agatha christie's very lush descriptions for example you know that 95% of what she's describing is irrelevant yeah but you need to keep your ears pricked so you don't miss the one detail that is not irrelevant the fact that the girl had bitten nails for example is going to be the one detail in her description that will um provide poirot with a clue that will allow him to i think it's miss marple in that the particular one i'm thinking of the body in the library that will allow them to uh the detective to solve the mystery and you have that going for you as well and you really uh exploit it in the most delightful way um <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i i think you know it's an interesting thing because um a, a lot of the the good press that i got from altered carbon made much said you know the the beautifully jeweled and interlocking plot uh honestly plotting is not a strength of mine and uh altered carbon was put together pretty organically uh which is to say i wrote it forward with only the vaguest of ideas of how it would end and uh, i think what there are, there are, there's a downside to that, which for me is it takes a bloody long time to write the book. Uh, the upside of it is that there's a good chance that you won't be able to work out what's coming because I didn't know at the time either. <laughs> that, and that, that is a real strength because if you're describing a character and you're not even sure if this character, you know, is important to the narrative at that stage, uh, then the way you describe it will, will you know, there isn't going to be the, the, the giveaway of you're like, oh, I better pay attention to this one. It's pretty obvious that, that she's going to be very important in the narrative. Um, and, and I still, to this day, I still am not very good at plotting ahead. And the books, for that reason, tend to be a little bit lumpy. They don't, I wouldn't say they have the nice, neatly, deci- neatly designed three-act structure and they, they don't flow the way a sort of a James Patterson thriller would. But in my defense, what I'd say is that I can usually surprise you a few times because I surprise myself as well. I'm really surprised to hear that you didn't plot it out first um, because, uh, yeah, I I have to concur that it's a very well-plotted whodunit. You know, it's beautifully, uh, it's beautifully plotted. Let's return to the, kind, the topic of um, re-sleeving and um, tell... Uh, Tell my listeners a little bit about Download Central. Um, in, you're talking about the the one in in Bay City specifically. Um, yes, let's start with that one. Yeah. Well, okay. So Download Central is basically like a. I mean, it's it's almost like a sort of a. Um, it's it's the release section of the penal penal system in in this part of the world, and this is where 
uh, if someone's been in jail. If you go to jail uh, for anything other than minor infractions, what happens is they, they, they digitize you, they take you out of your body, and they put you in storage. So you're not really experiencing it. You're just, you're just put in a file, and you're, it's like being dead or asleep. And when you've done your time, uh, you will be re-sleeved. Unfortunately, you'll be re-sleeved not in your own body, because that will have been sold off at this point. You'll be re-sleeved in whatever body they've got. Uh, if you're reasonably wealthy or you've got good health insurance, you might get a decent body. But if you don't have either of those options, you could come back in anything. Uh, and part of the horror of that is this idea of, of, you know, loved ones showing up to collect their uh, their their sibling or partner or child or parent from jail and not even not knowing what they're going to get. You know, they, they have no clue what sort of body they're going to be looking at. Uh, so there's a kind of implicit horror. I mean, I, I, I traveled a lot in the state. Well, a lot. I traveled for several months in the States back in the 90s. And I spent a lot of time because I was, you know, knocking around with, with um, you know, um, Amtrak and uh, um, Grey- Greyhound and stuff like that. Uh, I, I found myself hanging around, you know, port authorities and, and uh, bus stations and places like this where often the sort of the lost and the lonely and the broken tend to wash up. And there's a, a horrible existential sort of bleakness to those places, uh, you know, because very often the people who are traveling that way don't have a lot of money. They, they don't have a lot of options. And so it was a it was an attempt to sort of frame that to this sense that, you know, it didn't it doesn't matter how much glorious technology we've developed as a species. There will still be these places where, you know, the, 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 the losers and the damaged and the people who who, who have been de- dealt a raw hand by life will just be washing up. And, uh, you know, and you, you that's where you count the cost. You know, I think Dostoevsky said something about, um, you know, look in, have a look inside prisons and you'll understand what the society in question uh, is, uh, you know, it, it, it is that our prisons define our societies. And I, I think there's an element of that. Yes, there's an attempt to say, well, as long as this is going on, then there is clearly something very wrong with this society. Uh, and that was what I was after, really, with, with Download Central. It's really, um, so interestingly, uh, sorry, I'm going to digress again. <laughs> I changed the habit of a lifetime. Um, but when I was, I, I first watched the Netflix series, actually, before I um, before I read the book. And uh, so I did read the book quite recently. Um, but I actually abandoned the Netflix series halfway through. I couldn't tell what was going on and I kind of hated it. Then I read the book. I absolutely loved the book. And then I went back to watch the Netflix series because I always enjoy watching a series that, um, a film, a film version or series version of a book that I've liked, even if the film or series is bad, because I'm interested to see what they made of it. Um, it's like reading a critical interpretation of the text. Uh-huh. So, um, I would highly recommend people do it in that order. And also, I just wanted to say that because if you didn't enjoy the series, um, forget that. Just go and read the novel. It is much better in my opinion. But one of the few things, places where I thought the series actually did a better job than you did in the novel was in the series, there is this heart-rending scene um, where we see, along with Takeshi, as he is re-sleeved, so he comes out of a a tank, his consciousness is placed into a new body, and he goes out into the kind of, into the hallway, which, as you say, is like a kind of big bus station, coach station, 
um, railway terminal. Um, and alongside him is this, um, what looks like an, a, a woman in her late 50s, but a late 50s after a lot of really hard living. Yes. Um, with, with a very, uh, yeah, it's, be- it's beautifully cast. She's not an old woman, but she's a woman who looks she's seen the rough side of life yeah yeah her face is really really deeply um uh lined and her eyes are very sad and she's just she looks kind of broken down um and you see her being united with this young couple and they are just absolutely um stunned to see her and she comes over to this beautiful young couple in their kind of 20s and she says to the woman mummy and um, <laughs> and then you hear the guy complaining to one of the officials there uh, and he says uh, you know she was seven years old yeah. um, the victim of a hit and run accident how could you put my daughter in this broken old decrepit old body um, and Kristen Ortega, who is the uh, the detective, Kristen Ortega, who's one of the main characters in the novel, says, um, I think it's Ortega who says this in, in the series. She says, you know, this is victim support just gives you uh, whatever they have. Yeah. Um, and it tends to be it's it's like, you know, it's um, social security based, the social security version. Mm. And it's the worst of the worst. Yeah. Um, it's stripped to the bone. Yeah. It's the bodies that nobody else wants. Yeah. And those that's the body we've given your daughter. That That's an incredible scene. You have a similar version of that in Altered Carbon, but your version isn't isn't as quite as touching as the one that's in the Netflix series. So I think possibly the only place where I preferred the series to the book. Oh, right. um, no, actually, there are quite a few places where... Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I, I it's a different vision and, and there are parts of the vision I take issue with but I would say there are quite a few places where I feel that that Lita Caligridis and her crew actually came up with something better than the, than what I've done um that's what that what's interesting about that scene is I'm not convinced that it's better but what it is is it's more in your face because the yeah. because the one that happens to in in the book is much more understated and and it deals with different things as well it deals with with like what happens if your your loved one comes back and is a completely different race to you for example uh or yeah or, which or, seems much less important um well it's a way of differentiating it because because Kovac doesn't know that's the thing he's just walking past this so but mm. what, he, what he can clearly see is that you've got a i think it's a young black woman and a broken down old white man and and you know this is there's a clear discrepancy between the two um but the thing is when you're making a tv show or a movie you you've got to make sure these moments land and yeah and i think that was the thing that that lita had a problem with a lot of the time was that in the book you know, I, I get to do whatever I want. I get to, if I want you to pay attention to something, then I will make Kovac focus on it. And I will, and Kovac gives you a monologue so he can actually explain things. He can right. frame it for you. You know, there's a whole, uh, you know, he's, a, he's the narrator, so he can actually bring you in close. Now, of course, with, with making a movie or a TV show, you can't do that. You, you can't make, you can't have that. Or you could have a very intrusive voiceover, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it doesn't really work. Uh, mm, yeah. Mm, so, yeah. 
what you found, what I found that Caligridis was, was, you know, what she did time and time again, was she would take something that is quite understated in the book and she would really max it out. She'd really push hard for the, the, the massive, the, the, the best possible emotional kickoff that she kicked from, she could get from it. And obviously that's very important because it's a different medium. Um, so, you know, that works way better than if she had just copied over what I had in the book. But I mean, there are a lot of moments like that that are much stronger. I mean, I love the, I love what they did with, uh, Ortega's grandmother. I thought that entire sequence was, you know, where the grandmother comes back in the body of a, of a, a, a gangbanger. And uh, the, that whole dynamic, which isn't the, I mean, it's barely mentioned in the book that Ortega's do, um, grandmother used to be a cop. That's it. It's a one-liner. And again, Caligridis took that and she really mined it uh, for, for everything it would give. So, I mean, there are a lot of, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, I have no false modesty, but there are a ton of things in the show that are way better. And looking at them, I'm like, God damn it, I wish I'd thought of that at the time, you know. Uh, hmm. it's, I, I, I'm admitting to that. I, ha- I have, uh, I mean, I kind of have to disagree, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. I mean, I think that I couldn't, I found the show incoherent until I had read the book. Um, after that, the show, the kind of choices the show made more sense, but I still feel it didn't hang together. And the book really hangs together very well. Um, but I want to return to the kind of, um, the concept of the um, sleeves. Um, so one of the things that uh, in the novel is that um, the the meths, these very very old meths, standing for Methuselah, Methuselah, um, these very very old characters uh, who amassed huge wealth and power, are able to keep clones of themselves on file, and um, uh, upload their keep backups basically of their stack. Um, so keep backups of the digital data. Yeah. Um, on military grade satellites orbiting the planet and also keep clones of themselves in special, um, clone banks. And you have lovely contrasting descriptions of the way in which the ways in which, um, um, Bancroft, um, does this and the way in which, uh, Kawahara does this. Yeah. Um, and um, in a sense, what they pay for is a continuity of identity. So obviously, they clone themselves into bodies in their prime of in the prime of life. So they don't have to go through aging. So they mm. don't have the Tythonus um, problem. But they, um, but what they're able to, what money buys you is a continuity of physical identity and i i thought that was a uh a fascinating and wonderful touch yeah well it's it thank you uh it's it, again it, what, what i you know because I, I i you know i've i've been poor and i'm i'm now what i think most people would consider well off um and one of the things you realize i think as you especially as you get older what what money really buys you is comfort uh and it's so the point is that you, you, you know, everyone, you can get through life and if you can get through life actually not having very much money, if you, depending on your attitude and what you choose to do with your life. But what, what money does is it takes all of the sting out of things. Um, so you don't have to worry about the various things that people who are getting by on a, on a halfway decent salary have to worry about. And I think that was, that's the point that although there's some provision for everybody to be immortal, 
you know, how you're immortal is is subject very much to the kind of wealth you have. And yeah, the for the um, for the meths, it's as easy as literally going to sleep and getting up again. So you literally go to sleep in one body, wake up in a in your your new edition of the body. It's you, but it's younger. Off you go. There's no, you know, there's no bump in it. It's it's really really lovely. It's like flying first class, basically. So the rest of us are back in cattle class with, you know, if we're lucky, we've paid enough insurance premiums to have have a halfway decent body, but we've got to live right through to our old age because otherwise we won't have been able to pay for the thing. And we have to do old age uh, each time. And, and I say one of the, the underlying conceits of the book is the idea that after people have lived through old age two or three times, they just get fed up. And they're like, I can't fucking, I can't be bothered to do this again. Uh, and so they give up. They they allow themselves to be just stored away and they don't come back because they can't face having to do the years from 50 through to 80 uh, in order to, to get to get back to start again. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's that's very much the way wealth works. You know, it's, it's, it's not that you can't have a good life without wealth, but wealth will take out all of the bumps. It will make it a smooth, comfortable ride. It's much, it's much more extreme in your novel. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with what you say about wealth. And, um, uh, you know, uh, if you're, if you're poor, little things that you, you could otherwise solve easily become huge existential problems. Yeah. Um, and it's very hard also to, if you're poor, it's very hard to focus on the things that you want to focus on like for example writing or in my case I was a professional dancer for years so you bet I know her poverty Um, and I think that it's very hard to focus on your art if you are also worrying about whether you can meet your rent that month Um, and that is something that financial security allows you to kind of place your focus and your attention um, more, more wholeheartedly somewhere else and something other than money. But um, really, I it's something that I always emphasize when people I feel have a tendency to kind of talk about privilege as if it's if as if it insulates you from all of life's knocks, that the biggest sorrows are growing old, growing ill, dying having your loved ones dying and those are things wealth can't insulate you from but in in your novel wealth can insulate you from those things and that's extraordinary yes and Um, Uh, because because that is the i mean you know it's the trajectory that we're on is that we you know i mean it's it's the you know for better or worse it is the it is the dynamic of late stage capitalism first you fulfill people's basic needs you make sure they're fed and clothed and warm and so forth and once you've sold them all of that stuff you have to keep upping your game and selling them increasingly ephemeral and complicated and what you could argue are less important things but those things become all consuming and yes we have reached a point where actually it's looking like there will be medical procedures available that if not making people immortal will certainly be able to extend their lives beyond anything most hu- normal humans could expect. And obviously that will be what's available to, to the, the rich. So it's interesting if you go back to, I guess, the 50s and before, I think I think what, no, actually probably it might, in, in, in Western culture, I suspect it ran as until the 80s. Um, one of the things that the, I found that the sort of, you know, underclass or working class, whatever you want to call them, one of the areas where they, they, they could still claim some ascendancy was in the idea of if you came from a background, you would be 
physically strong and tough and and you know in good shape and there's a lot of a lot of fiction comes out of the 60s about how you know women who are very bowled over by the working class hero because he's tough and strong and he's you know he's got the muscles that come with having to make your way in the world at that level whereas you know the the world of the wealthy is full of people who are soft pampered effete uh you know they don't they, they they haven't taken the hard knocks so they are not seasoned in the way that that you will be if you if you have and that kind of endures as a as a, as a way of thinking about things until the 80s and then of course in the 80s with gym culture suddenly being in a in good shape becomes the thing that everybody wants and then what happens is that yeah so the wealthy pay for personal trainers they have the time and leisure to and and wealth to uh, invest in keeping themselves in good shape and you're now in a position if you look around the western world where you find that uh, the underclass actually look like shit because they're eating crap food uh, they don't have time to look after themselves properly they haven't had the education and general background to pursue those things it's it's much harder for that kind of an attitude to to endure where and the people who look good are again the wealthy you know so they've kind of co-opted that idea of having a great body that's become again the preserve of of, of wealthy people um and i think this is the way it goes that the the, the you know wealth allows you to basically capitalize literally on whatever's good and and what we perceive as good is shifting obviously all the time but what's happening is the the perception of 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 how much of things is good is expanding and so now it's not just about having money and security and a big house it's also about having a great body being in good shape uh you know um getting to travel the world in becoming culturally enriched these are all things that the wealthy can now lay claim to and do uh, and the underclass again are, are shut out or have to really struggle to to access them uh, you know one of the things that made me absolutely incandescently furious about brexit was the way that it basically made europe sudden, again the preserve of the wealthy because if you want to go hang out in europe you can no longer if you're british you can no longer just go there and stay get a job do whatever that is now complicated that is now difficult to achieve whereas obviously if you're wealthy it's not a problem you just go you pay for things um so yeah there is a dynamic whereby i think wealth ultimately co-opts everything that it could if it can uh, you can't really blame the wealthy people for doing it i mean let's face it you, if anyone in that position will do it but but the the extent to which the underclass get kind of shut out of these things is is uh, is increasing because i say look back to the 60s and they say the, uh, the at least you could argue that a man who worked in a factory or a foundry or whatever he was probably physically healthier than a guy who worked in a bank that is now probably the, the opposite is probably true now uh, you know mm. the guys in banks and have tons of money will also have an expensive gym membership and they will be in great shape uh, and the underclass are struggling to get by uh, at their you know they're doing a white collar nominally a white collar job they're sitting there uh, in a call center it's a sedentary job they don't get the chance or to to uh, to work out you know to, to look after themselves in the way that the wealthy can and yeah and so it goes on uh, the, the the endless wave of co-option of of life and all its pleasures yeah, I think um so I want to go back to the kind of um I questions of identity within the novel. I think that um I was struck reading it by um by the contrast with for example Ian M Banks's culture novels <laughs> in which um in which you know citizens of the culture can can change their bodies, skin colors 
and sex at will. Yeah. Um, and they have kind of great fun doing that. There's nothing, there's nothing ever, uh, as far as I can remember from the culture novels I've read, there is never anything very problematic about that. No. Um, and, uh, that's a, it's a very utopian, I mean, the culture novels are fundamentally a utopian vision, whereas your vision is dystopian. It's about uh, the way in which um, technology, um, however advanced your technology, there are certain questions that you cannot solve. I'm not sure I agree with that as a kind of philosophical proposition, but I, I think that it's, it's kind of in, it's inbuilt to the structure of your uh, novel. It's a, it's a pessimist. It's a pessimist vision, and there are um, there are a lot of questions which I think um, I personally, because I I was a dancer and I taught dance for years, um, have also struggled with, which is um, to what extent is the person, uh, to what extent is the body um, the person, and you uh, uh, spoiler alert. Um, you explore this topic by having, for example, your protagonist, um, Takeshi, comes back in the body of um, Riker. Um, and you make a little little jokey allusion to Star Trek with that name. I noticed that you have um, um, when Riker, uh, when uh, Kovach slash Riker sits down, he will turn the chair around to face him and then straddle it like like Riker does in the next generation yeah. um, thank you for that little Easter egg um, but you have him kind of coming coming back as as Riker and he is um, um, Kristen Ortega the detective um, sorry uh, your detective Kristen Ortega was Riker's girlfriend and so therefore she she has to work with somebody who has come back in the old, in the body of her old boyfriend. And they end up, of course, having a kind of brief um, love story. And it's very, it's really how, how much of one of the things that you are questioning there is how much of love and how much of identity has to do with the, with the physical, with our response to the physical body. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with with Ian's uh, work uh, with you know the culture novels is they are tantamount to fantasy. I mean, they're so far in the future that technology might as well be magic, and um, and and he's not really interested in exploring the downsides of technology. I mean, for him, technology just is is solves all the problems, and the problems that arise in the culture novels don't have anything to do with that. They they, they always in have to do with encountering more regressive civilizations and it's how the culture deals with them um and i love that i love those books but it is it is a fantasy land and i think i'm more interested in the constraints placed upon us i'm more interested in the extent to which humanity limits us uh and i don't think technology is going to set us free from that anytime soon we can improve i mean don't get me wrong we you know we are living better lives than any human beings have managed to do uh, you know, before. I mean, one statistic I'm very fond of quoting is that in the United Kingdom in 1960, and that's only five years before I was born, in 1960, the most common age of death for British citizens was zero, which is to say, um, recently born children. So either 
stillborn or dead within their first year of life, right? And that was the most common age at which British people died. And that's 1960. Now, now, the most common age at which British people die is about 83, uh, you know? So we can't, you know, I'm not one of these idiots who thinks that, you know, oh, what's technology ever done for us? You know, it is a ludicrous stance. We are so much better off with our technology than we were without it. Um, but... I think at the same time, we are, you know, we are, we have to accept the realities of, of what we are. I'm very much a materialist and we are violent apes. Now we've evolved somewhat, but we're still fundamentally violent apes and that isn't going to go away. And unless we can actually genetically edit ourselves, which again <laughs> carries with it a whole host of dystopian possibilities, we are always going to be violent apes and violent apes will always behave in certain ways. Uh, that you know their imperatives will not be the imperatives of the sort of Star Trek civilization, uh, and getting a handle on our on our drives and applying a rationality to it, you know, the Enlightenment dream, if you like, is it is the struggle of every human lifetime. Uh, and I think one a lot of the problems we face politically at the moment is because we kind of we did that struggle and then we reached a point maybe in the sixties where we just went, oh well, it's done now. Okay, everything's cool. We can just sit back, relax, and go to rock concerts. Um, and, and this clear, this is just not the case. And if you don't keep an eye on these things, then they end up backsliding. Uh, and that's where we are. We've, we've slid back to a position where atavism and, you know, refusal to deal with material reality has become a thing again. Uh, we thought we'd defeated the old religions. Turns out we haven't. We've got a bunch of new religions giving us exactly the same shit that the old ones did. Um, you know, and so to that extent, you know, my fictions are, I wouldn't call them dystopians. I, you know, for me, all they are is extrapolations of where we are now. Uh, and I think compare them to Ian Banks's um, culture. Obviously, anything would appear dystopian uh, because, because of the, you know, the, 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 the sort of um, paradisical element of, of, of far future technology. Um, but, but again, what's interesting is even with Ian, he, he had to bring in, he brings them in through, as I said, less developed civilizations, but he still brings in the issue that these atavistic dark urges don't go away. You know, they're still around uh, and they will keep surfacing and they become the material for, for conflict and fiction. Um, but I'm a lot, I mean, uh, I, think he, I think he always said, he said that, you know, he invented the culture as his, his version of the afterlife. It's where he'd like to go to live when he died. Um, and I think it's best understood in those terms. And the reason I mention that is because I, I saw a couple of years ago, I saw Elon Musk talking about the future of humanity and saying, well, my vision of the future of humanity is the one in Ian Banks' culture novels. Now, this is a man who has a huge influence on how events pan out on Earth right now. And it's like, fuck, Elon, get a fucking grip, man. That's fantasy. It is literally fantasy. You cannot... Um, you know, see that as any kind of realistic framework for how humanity behaves or will behave. Uh, and I say, I am always constrained by a, I wouldn't say it's pessimistic, but just a materialist vision of, of, of what life is. Hmm. I would, I mean, um, I, I think I don't want to get into it too much, but it's interesting to me that although I'm very much an optimist, um, you know, I am a Popperian optimist. Um, I believe in infinities of possibility. Um, I'm yeah. very influenced by David Deutsch's book of that name, The Beginning of Infinity. Uh -huh. um, and however, um, I don't kind of share your vision at all, 
I think that the dystopia or the the vision of kind of constraint is just as much uh, a fantasy, i.e. it's all a fantasy. We don't know what will happen in the future and we don't know what we don't know. We, you're right, we can't know what the future holds, but what we can do is extrapolate on existing evidence. And, mm. and if you extrapolate on existing evidence, you don't see, let's say, a rosy future. I, I, I believe that things can get better, but there's going to be a bump because obviously with climate change and various other issues arising, things are going to get worse for a while now. Um, but I don't, I'm not a catastrophist. I mean, I don't think we're all going to go down in fire and ruin or anything like that. Mm. But... but what I don't believe is that at some point we're suddenly going to go, oh, and there won't be this forehead slapping moment where we go, oh, why on earth are we so horrible to each other? That's crazy. Uh, you know, surely we should just got, get on and be, um, you know, and be nice to each other and and understand how much positivity can come from behaving in this fashion. It, that's never coming. I mean, people don't behave like that. They, they don't behave like that in their individual lives. They don't behave like that as groups. Um, you know, it, it's by definition – Anything, you know, where you build unity of purpose, where you build teams, where you build um, uh, communities, if you like, they are almost always defined in opposition to something else. And that's the thing. Uh, you, we, we're very good. I mean, the, you know, there's, I've, I've, I've read a number of people who, who push this line of the positive side of humanity. There is a positive side to humanity. There's no question. We, we, we have many, many positive qualities. Uh, you know, don't, I'm not. I'm not a. You know, I'm not. I'm. Not, I'm not a teenage. Uh, uh, you know, sulk guy. Uh, there's huge potential in our species, but you've got to be aware of the shadows that it casts. And I say, for every amazing thing we do, we define ourselves still by our opposition to something else, because uh, it's the nature of the. It's the nature of the beast. I think we're talking a bit at cross purposes here, but I want to get back to the. Um, uh, because that's that's not what I'm that's not what I mean at all. I mean that's not my kind of disagreement. What my disagreement is based on at all. But I, I think I would want to just get back to the literature for a moment, which is, um, there's kind of two there. There are two sorts of genres of uh, sci-fi. There is the more cozy and utopian vision. Um, which is definitely completely compatible with the idea of an unchanging human nature and of conflict between individuals. Without conflict, um, you can't have fiction that, yes, uh, exactly. you know, is any good at all. Um, when you have actual utopian novels, i.e. utopias in which they believe that human nature has changed and that where everybody is lovely to each other all the time, um, as opposed to a kind of utopia in which the incentives have shifted, mm. um, if it's more like we all had a huge enlightenment, those novels are just absolute crap. Um, and I, I'm, I'm going to add to the show notes uh, Ewan Morrison's article for Ario magazine on on utopias because I think Ewan is Ewan is the guy, uh, the go-to guy to talk about why utopias don't work in fiction or in life and why they're actually extremely. Dis, um, searching for a utopia is extremely destructive in life and it yes. makes for very, very bad fiction. Um, but there is a kind of cozier sci-fi, um, the Star Trek um, vision of things. Um, You're a big fan, aren't you? I am. A, I'm a huge fan. Um, but um, and and to some extent, Ian, the Ian Banks vision of things. And I, Ian Banks is very good at wish fulfillment. His novel, his non-sci-fi novel, 
I think it's called either the firm or the business. I think it's called the business. Business, yeah. Um, it's just, um, it is just a kind of uh, sort of um, James Bond with gender reversed, sex reversed James Bond fantasy. And I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite ever novels. Um, it's very pleasing. It's like a dream from which you don't want to awaken. Yeah. But um, there is also, I think most sci-fi has a dystopian edge. And really, one of the things that I get from very good sci-fi, and I got absolutely from Altered Carbon, is um, if you change a lot of the um, material premises of life. So you put us all, all on a different planet, like in Kim Stanley Robinson's novels, you put us all on Mars. Yeah. Um, I, I absolutely adore those novels. Or on a distant planet, which is just exiting from an ice age in which all the inhabitants are sequential, estrus-dependent hermaphrodites. Yeah. Um, or in your case, and I think your vision is one of the most radical um a place where you can upload consciousness and re-sleeve it in new bodies, um, then having changed so many of the material circumstances naturally raises philosophical questions because what remains is more fundamental. And I'm going to make a slightly strange analogy, but another of my absolute favorite, totally non-fictional non books uh, probably my favorite nonfiction book of all time is Richard Dawkins' book, The Ancestor's Tale. Uh -huh, and yeah. there he traces, um, he traces our natural history from the present day back to the beginning of life on this planet. Um, and at each stage, we human beings meet a common, uh, or we meet, we and another species, other species meet common ancestors, and the common ancestors tell a story of what it means to be alive. Uh, they tell a story of something we and they have in common, which is fundamental to life. Yeah. And the thing is, as you get back further in time, um, then the stories and the kind of the issues that he's dealing with become more and more and more profound and fundamental because uh, there are fewer and fewer um, obvious similarities. So once you get past mammals, you're asking different and deeper questions. And once you get past chordates, you're asking different questions. Once you get past animals, and once you get past, um, um, uh, uh, once, once you get to um, back to archaea and proto protozoa. So, um, the same thing happens when you do very radical science fiction is you're stripping, um, you're stripping away many of the kind of commonalities and asking what's left. And what's left is ba almost bound to be something philosophically deep and interesting. Yeah, you have to, I mean, you'll end up, you'll end up with the, with the roots of who we are, basically. That's, that's what happened. Where did you first get the idea for Altered Carbon? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it all kind of it came together from a bunch of different places. I mean, I'd always wanted to tell a story about um, a sort of hard-boiled ex-space ex, 
military specialist in a in a science fictional context because i like the i like the discursive private eye thing i think it provides a lot of a lot of room for social comment for sort of disparaging uh, excoriation of, of of our failings um but no i mean the real trigger for the concept you know the mystery that's at the core of the book was um basically i got i was at a house party in london you know how these things boil down where i um i was in the kitchen and i got into an argument with a guy who was a buddhist and uh, he was talking i mean he was arguing we were arguing about buddhism and i i, I got a I got a lot of time for Buddhism. I mean, you know, I think of the of the major faiths, it's the one that's the least full of shit. I suppose would be one way to put it. Uh, but it was interesting because we got into the argument, the discussion of karma and how it works, and the idea of reincarnation, which not all not all um, Buddhists necessarily have the same view of this. But the basic view that he had was this idea that you know, if you're suffering in this life, it's because as a as a being in a prior, previous life, you did something that was wrong, and the karmic balance has to reassert itself, and so you are you are paying off your your karma, if you like. And you know, superficially, that's a very appealing idea uh, because it's like, yeah, you know, it goes around, comes around, and you know, you should try to behave well in this life because you, the, the payoff for that comes in later life. But then I said to him, I said, but the thing is, let's assume I'm suffering horribly in this life, and that's because in a previous life I did something terrible, but. I have no memory of that life. So if I have no memory of that life, I am not that person. I am not that entity. Uh, you know, you can say, oh, it's the same soul or the, you know, whatever, whatever, however you want to define that. But fundamentally, if I have no access to the, to the memories that that entity had, I am not that entity. We, we are our memories. So t- it is no more just than somebody suffering for no good reason at all. Um, so, you know, how do you square that? And he, he fell back on the thing that all religious people fall back on sooner or later. They just go, oh, well, you have to have faith. And that's essentially what he said. He dressed it up a bit, but that was essentially what he said. Um, but, but it stayed with me. Uh, you know, I woke up hung over the next day and it, it stayed with me. This idea of to what extent could you possibly be responsible for things you did that you have no memory of, literally have no memory of, you know, are you the person who did those things? Um, now, you know, if it's amnesia, then there's a very simple answer. Yes, you are. It's just you can't remember it. But what if what if you genuinely, you know, are not the same physical being that did the, those things? And that and so, you know, that idea took root and it sort of grew and grew and grew. And I and I I guess if I'd been a more literary writer, I might have explored it through the idea of reincarnation or something similar. But um you know, for me, again, I'm a hard-boiled materialist. So for me, it was like, okay, so let's explore this through a technology that gives us this this situation. Uh, and that's, the, you know, that's where the core idea came from. That was the, the crime at the heart of it. And, uh, you know, that's what drove the book forward, I guess. Hmm. Oh, you are definitely a literary writer. I mean, I don't, I'm not a big fan of hard-boiled um, noir novels, but I, um, uh, you know, this is not... Um, genre fiction. I mean, part of why I hesitated to read other books by you was I thought uh, once, if I read the similar ideas repeated, then it will begin to feel like genre fiction. Uh-huh. Um, whereas um, well, as it, a it, it, standalone it is. novel, it really does not. Yeah, I mean, it is genre fiction. It's, it's deep in the heart of genre. I mean, I, I did get some people when it first came out who were sort of arguing that this was you know, you couldn't be seen wholly as a science fiction novel, but I mean, it is. I mean, I'm I'm a sci-fi yeah. fan way back. It is my milieu, and it, and it is a genre novel. There's no question about that. 
Well, there's a there's a long tra- there's also a tradition of sci-fi whodunits. Um, that is true. Uh, yeah. You know, Asimov and well, I'm thinking of Asimov um, now. I can't immediately think of others, but um, no, there are other. There are other. Paul Anderson has written some some stuff where there's a there's a mystery to be resolved at the heart of the story, and uh, you know, say it, it's, it's quite a common. I mean, I think that thing that Asimov did, you know, like in Caves of Steel, where he, and then all the robot stories as well, of course, in the short stories, where there is there's a, a core issue, and it has to do with the technology. And that that you know what happened the, the the truth of the matter has to be somehow exposed, uh, and I think that's quite an honourable trope generally in in um, in science fiction. There's a lot there is a lot of it about. Still, there's a lot of it about. There are a lot of people writing now. I, one of the joys of my job is that I get sent you know manuscripts to read, and uh, quite often I'll get something sent to me where yeah there is a, a new technology has 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 evolved, crime has been committed that has to do with the new technology. Uh, how do we resolve the, the crime and find, punish the guilty? You know, so forth. Um, it's, it's you say there's a lot of it. It's 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 definitely an honourable trope. Yeah. Hmm. Who have been your biggest influences? Um, what, who? Which are your favourite sci-fi novels and why? Well, I'd say that the single biggest influence on me of all is William Gibson. Uh, because it was Gibson. I mean, I'd always wanted to write. I'd known I wanted to write since I was about 10 or 11 years old. Um, and I had tried my hand at all sorts of stuff, different stuff, because I was reading all sorts of different stuff. But I think I started reading uh, William Gibson's short stories in Omni magazine in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, as soon as I read Johnny Mnemonic and uh, Hinterlands and uh, Burning Chrome, I knew it was like this. Yeah, this is the real shit. This is what I want to write. Um, and, and interestingly, that the whole point was that, yes, he'd spliced science fiction to the noir sensibility, uh, and that was what I fell in love with. Uh, so I'd say Gibson gets the, the major credit, but I've read very, very widely in genre as well, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I, prob- I owe. I mean, I owe Paul, Paul Anderson uh, for the sort of fairly cynical outlook of my characters and the, and the sort of ropey state of, of, of the worlds that I describe. Um, and, and to some extent, some of the swashbuckling as well. Uh, his his Dominic Flandry stories are great. They, they, they're really, really sour, but beautifully written and fun. Um, I've also also a big fan of of, Rob, of Bob Shaw, who wrote sort of these sort of hard-boiled engineering type qualified guys who, who have to deal with shitty situations and, and are extremely short-tempered with both alien life and, and assholes in their own crew. Uh, I really loved his stuff. Um, I was also, and I'm also a huge devotee of, of of crime fiction, of noir crime fiction, the American hard-boiled tradition, especially. So that's that's Chandler and Hammett, but almost everything that's been written since. Very big fan of Elroy. I mean, I, I find his stylistically Elroy is absolutely stunning. Uh, but equally, James Lee Burke, who's another crime writer who is is very lyrical in his writing. He's the opposite of Elroy in a way. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm, it's it's a broad church, and I mean, there's a lot of literary stuff. I'm a big fan of Lynch's work, and I do find myself sometimes adopting sort of stylistic ticks that that I found in Pynchon that I that he uses. Um, I will honestly, I will read pretty much anything, uh, and 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 it will end up getting adapted because I mean, I think authors are, you know, so I think Tarantino said, you know. Um, good author, good authors do homages. Great authors just steal. 
And uh, yeah, you, 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 anything you see in a book that you've read and liked, you go, oh, oh I'm having that. And you take it mm. away. <laughs> I, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, but I was going to say, so those are, those are, those were my influences. Um, but in terms of what I'm reading now and the stuff that I really like now, I think there are two writers within genre who are apps. And they're the only two writers in genre working now that I am genuinely jealous of in that when they put a book out, I am jealous that I didn't write it. Uh, you know, and that's uh, there's a guy called Lavi Tidar and he, um, he's an Israeli writer. Uh, and it continues to produce just totally mad off the wall stuff that is beautifully written and very powerfully humane and looks at some really really weird shit. Um, I'd say I'd, my recommendation for for Tidar would be start with a book called Unholy Land, which is a kind of sort of alternate future, um, almost almost sort of alternate history type fiction, but it goes. It goes somewhere else as well. It's it's very interesting. But I say any of his stuff is good. And then the other guy is Peter Watts, who's a Canadian hard science fiction writer who makes me look like a fucking optimist. I mean, he really does. If you think my stuff is dystopian, Watts will will give you nightmares. I mean, he's he is brutal uh, with his stuff. But he's one of the finest extrapolators of exist of technology and concepts that I've ever come across. Uh, amazing mind, truly amazing mind. Uh, he he's a trained marine biologist. And, and very conversant with science at all levels. And that comes through in the writing. And I mean, his book, Blind Sight, is a masterclass in how to do um, hard science fiction, but also how to do a first contact novel, because he gives you the first contact novel and, and the principal component of first contact is horror. Uh, and it's not horror in the sense of scary monsters horror. It is existential horror. Uh, and it, it is a beautiful, beautiful, darkly beautiful book. Uh, so yeah, Watson Tidar. If you're reading those two, you are reading the very finest of cutting edge in genre at the moment. Thank you. When I was when I was reading Altered Carbon, I mean, I haven't read any of those, but I was. Um, I think the three things that most kind of ca- came to mind were um, Neuromancer, um, and I did read a couple of critiques of people who thought that your book was kind of a knockoff of that, but I really don't agree with that at all. I can just see a, an influence there or a um, a, um, a similarity in approach. Absolutely, there is a there is a strong influence. I mean, in much the way that you can see Hammett appearing in the way that Gibson writes. Similarly, you will see Gibson in my writing, especially in the earlier books. I mean, I'd like to think I developed a style of my own over time. But yeah, absolutely. The man, you know, the man is my God. He, he, he defined a kind of storytelling within genre that I hadn't seen before and that I still think it remains unique to this day. But he's not me. I mean, his, his, obs- no. his obsessions are not mine. He's, no. he's far more cerebral than I am. He is uh, much more interested in the surface of things that I think than I am. And uh, and and he's a lot less interested in sort of hard-boiled noir um, protagonist fiction as well. Uh, so you know, it's it's. I think if you're the lazy take is oh, it's a knockoff of Neuromancer. Uh, the you know the more nuanced take is this guy. You know, is a big fan of Gibson, and you can see his influences. Uh, and I, I'd yeah. like to think that even in even in thin air, you are probably going to find stuff that you go, oh yeah, that's a, you can see the Gibson influence is still there. Um, but that's all of us. I mean, we're all influenced by somebody. I think the two other things that I that cu- were kind of uppermost in my mind when I was reading were um, Asimov's. Um, I mean, Asim- Asimov's um, 
robot uh, whodunits. I mean, they're very, very different in extremely different in style and execution from what you're doing here. Um, but I was a little bit reminded of them, and there are some similarities um, with the themes that are in the Naked Sun book, for uh, in particular. Mm. Asimov, though, I frankly don't think Asimov is a very good writer, with the exception of iRobot, which is just a work of a superlative genius. Um, yeah, he's a, but, I mean, he's an ideas man, you know. Yeah, he's, it's concepts. He's an idea, yeah. And his ideas, his ideas are fantastic, but he cannot write a human being to save his life, you know. <laughs> no, he, no, he um, can't. And, and you don't notice that. I mean, when I read him when I would have been like, nine ten years old initially and then obviously I, I, I kind of bailed out I think when I hit my teens and and yeah I mean when you're when you're that age you don't notice because you've got such a a limited view of what humanity is anyway uh so you know I read all of his stuff all the all the various adventure among the stars stories I read found the foundation trilogy I read the robot stories I read um the large bailey stories I read um uh, there's one I can't God I can't remember what it's called it anyway it doesn't matter I read a ton of them um, and I love them because yeah when you're 10 11 years old this shit is 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 the shit uh, but then as I say I started reading Paul Anderson and I suddenly was faced with these you know sort of grumpy imperfect uh, you know struggling characters who are you know don't know if they're doing the right thing don't know what you know don't really know. You know, they, they, they can't, they're struggling to work out their own lives, let alone you know, missions that they're given. And there's no going back from that. I think once you've had the mold broken like that, then you can't go back. And after, after reading Anderson's stuff, like reading his, um, Terran Empire sequence with, say, Dominic Flandry, who is the, a kind of futuristic James Bond, but, but really, really maudlin and, and melancholy about what he's really doing for a living. Um, and once you've read those, you then go back to Asimov and you're like, this is fucking plastic, man. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and that was the end of that, I, I think. But yeah. it's fine. You know, it's you've got to read Asimov within his context. He was a golden age writer. Um, and it was a time when you didn't, you know, character, character flaws, um, you know, you know, uh, emotionals, emotional interaction. These things were disposable at best in the science fiction of that time. Mm. Uh, you know, you had. So, so I, 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 I'm very happy to forgive him because he was a guiding light in my very early genre reading. Well, they're just one wonderful, wonderful ideas. Sorry, I didn't, I, I didn't mean to yes, interrupt. Absolutely. No, he's a brilliant ideas man, and he's very good at working the ideas out as well. He has, he's, he's in a way, he's the thing I will never be in that his his sort of locked room mysteries. They are absolute genius. They, you know, it's literally you get to the end and you really are like, oh my god, of course, why didn't I see that? You know, he's he's very good at that. It's there's a there's a genius of its own within that, but it's a very mechanistic genius. It's it's the genius of a of a you know of a of a yeah of a programmer if you like. Yeah, and the third thing that was in my mind as I was reading your book was uh, Blade Runner, um, oh, or you oh. know. Oh, do androids dream of electric sheep? Um, the initial novel of that. There are some. There are some similarities, both in the kind the kind of world um, that Earth is in your novel, um, and um, and also that Harlan's world, in a sense, is in your novel, um, and the world of Blade Runner. Um, and there's also uh, there's there's a some some similarity in kind of questions about. Consciousness, identity, memory, um, 
particularly in later parts of your novel when you're dealing with multiple clones of the same person who have different memories. Um, and uh, so I had a little bit of a, a feeling of kind of reminiscence of that, a very pleasant, very pleasant reminiscence that I absolutely adore both the book and the film. Um, and I think that also having having watched Blade Runner kind of teaches you how to visualize the scenes as well that you're given in, in your novel. Absolutely. But it is quite, it is quite unique. Um, I mean, looking through my list of sort of favorite sci-fi novels, I don't think it's too similar to all of them. I made a list, which I sent you on in a, when we were conversing on Twitter message. And just for fun, I'm going to, uh, just for fun, I'm going to tell people what I said. Um, cause I'd like people to get a sense of the range, um, and how unlike, how kind of unlike your novel is to pretty much all the others that are among my favorites. Um, yeah, that's like me. <laughs> yeah, I know how it feels. Yeah. So the ones that I sent a long list of to you, um, uh, were the left hand of darkness is, is my all time oh. favorite, as I have said. The Hyperion Cantos, Sirius, novel by Olaf Stapleton, um, yeah. iRobot, The Black Cloud, um, June, uh -huh. uh, uh -huh. the Mars, the Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, uh, The Player of Games, so Ian M. Banks' novel. And I think the only one of his novels that I really love, um, I find his other novels enjoyable, but The Player of Games just stands out to me. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Old Man's War, um, and Red Shirts. I think I maybe like Red Shirts even better. Um, Ender's uh, Game, The Star's My Destination. And I have uh, a big soft spot for the recent, and it's very much cozy utopian sci-fi novel, The Hail Mary Project. Um, I've not read it yet. So, yeah, I mean, your novel has kind of almost nothing in common with any of those apart from being sci-fi <laughs> and just being... <laughs> extremely well-written sci-fi um so yeah i it's uh um if it's, you it's an, if you'd never written anything else again um you would still be a great writer in my uh in my opinion because that is a an amazing novel that is very kind and they say that is extremely august company to be in as well um i it's funny you mentioned Le Guin because I, i've not read a huge amount of Le Guin, but i really fell in love with the dispossessed the dispossessed is the only novel i've ever read where I sat down when I finished it and I wrote a fan letter to the author. I actually, I sent Ursula Le Guin a, a postage, you know, a paid written hard copy letter back in the day uh, mm. to, I guess, publishers, I don't know if she ever got it, just saying how much I'd been wowed by, by the dispossessed. But I, I do find something quite interesting about Ursula Le Guin because she, you know, she had some very interesting training. I think she was a, uh, an ethnologist was she, or an anthropologist? She, she, she had. She came from a science background, anyway, or a soft science background. But what I find quite interesting is she's she's sort of able to address the the sort of lots of hard truths. But then when it comes to the end, she just comes away from all the hard truths and she goes, "Yeah, but it will be all right because we'll invent something lovely and cuddly and solve that." And I, <laughs> and I always feel that um, you know, she, the dispossessed was like that as well. There was this idea that she she sort of you know, she takes you for a walk through this anarchist, this idea of an anarchist planet. And she, she shows you all the warts and everything. She's not blind to the, the, the dysfunctions of the left. 
uh, and she goes all the way through it. But then at the end, there's this sort of smiley, happy ending where she's just like, oh, well, never mind. You know, life goes on. And uh, and I just think it's interesting because I come out in much the same place, except that my life goes on is a lot more lugubrious. It's like, well, you know, life goes on. What else are you going to do? Which is, uh, <laughs> I guess, the intrinsic difference between Ursula Le Guin's um, personality and outlook and my own. Um, ah, yeah. I mean, I don't feel that about the left hand of darkness at all. I think that that novel is a tragedy, um, a classic tragedy. Yeah, and, I, but I, I'm not fond of. I'm not really very fond of Le Guin's other novels, actually, including The Dispossessed. Um, it's not really my my thing. Um, yeah. No, I think she. I think she was what a lot of, and it's interesting. I think it's something that a lot of women are as well, which is, you know optimistic past any sensible point of ra- of rational of reference um and obviously you know that's that's that has a lot to do with genetics you know if if your genetic function is to reproduce a life and bring it into a a really really risky and brutal world and somehow nurture it and send it on its way you've got to be a fucking optimist because there's no other way that works right uh, so um and i think it's interesting because that's what i find with 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 lagoon's work generally is She's she's away. She's alive to the tragedy. She's alive to the um, the sort of the grim, the potential grimness of life. But she she will not allow it. She you know she she always sort of believes that somehow we will move beyond that, and we will there'll be you know there'll be a better day, and things will be all right. And I don't quite know how she does it. I don't know how she gets away with it. But it's a, it's a neat trick if you can pull it off. I must admit. Um, my, my, my endings, you know, if you're lucky, you make it to, you survive and you walk away, you know, I don't know if there'll be a better day, but there will be another day anyway. That's, that's the only promise I'm, I'm usually offering. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're kind of wrong about optimism, but I think it's going to take us too far in a, in another direction. Um, I'm just registering my objection here (laughs) for the jury. Um, but is there anything that... Optimism as a concept, you mean, or as a, as um, a, a yeah, and the way that you're con- you conceptualize it, I think is wrong. Um, I think what? it's more about not being certain that we can extrapolate from what we know now because there are just too many unknown unknowns um, as to yeah, what okay, knowledge that, that, we will have in the future and um, what problems we will confront and what solutions we will find and where we'll find them. I just think there. Yeah, have you ever I think seen, it's have, early to see. Have you ever seen the movie um, Enemy at the Gates? No. Ah, uh, you should watch it. It's 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 not a perfect movie. It has some flaws. It's about the siege of Stalingrad and a duel between a Russian sniper and a German sniper. Um, but what's very interesting about it is there's a subplot in which one of the se- the secondary one of the secondary characters is a Russian political officer. And he attempts to basically betray the hero who is the sniper, played by Jude Law. Um, he attempts to betray Jude Law um, because he wants the, wants Jude Law's girlfriend. Um, and what happens is he, in the latter part of the book, uh, sorry, in the latter part of the movie, he has a breakdown because he realises that it doesn't matter what kind of perfect socialist society finally emerges at the end of all this horror that they're wading through at the time. Um, 
he realizes that men will always find things to fight about, even if it's literally, I want that guy's girlfriend, you know, that there'll always be something. And, and that his entire belief system, which rests on this idea that if we can only solve the inequities of the inequities of society, then everything will be hunky dory. It dawns on him suddenly, oh, my God, but that's not even true, because look at me. The point being, what, do you, what, what you know, the, the vision there is to say, look, the whole point is it won't matter what problems we solve. Men will always fight over women, you know, as a starter, but other things, too, because we're designed for that. You know, we, we are designed to form small tribal groups, be brutally um, loyal to those groups, but also to be brutally vicious and destructive to anybody outside that group. By definition, the out group defines the in group and gives us our strength. And that that won't go away. We, we can maybe get a rational handle on it to some extent. But again, if you look at what's going on politically in America at the moment, uh, in Britain as well, uh, the, what's also appearing in a rash across Europe in various other places too, what you're seeing is a return to a much more atavistic, populist way of looking at the world. And the reason for that is because it's deep in our coding. This is, we're good at this. You know, we actually aren't very good at living peaceful, productive, caring lives. Uh, we and and that's the that's the problem that you face. I, I honestly think there's an element there's an element of what's happening to us at the moment as a cult, you know as a Western society, and that element is basically boredom. We are bored with with a good life. It's been a long time since we've had a serious war. Um, you know, most people are insulated from the consequences of the few wars that the West still fights by proxy. Um, and I think we're in a position where we've got lots and lots of young men who have no fucking clue about the cost of thing of what of things. Um, and we have a whole bunch of people politically who, again, think that the world actually is made from the ground up out of out of, you know, um, cher um, cherry, cherry, cherry sweeties and strawberries. And um and that's, I, th I honestly think that's our problem. I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a failure to um, address our, in our inherent nature. And as long as we keep, keep failing to address it, as long as we fail to see ourselves in realistic terms, we're, we're going to be in serious trouble. Um, you know, uh, and there's a lot of science being done at the moment to, to try to address this. But the problem is that in the soft sciences, the social sciences, no one wants to hear it. They're all sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 I'm not listening, because they've already got this vision of what they want humanity to be, and they're not prepared to entertain the truth of what we are. Um, so, uh, you know, that in that sense, although I can't extrapolate, um, obviously, to what things will be like in a couple of centuries, but I can extrapolate and say we will still be getting drunk and beating each other up to outside pubs. We well, will well, still... Nobody no one questions that at all. I mean, I think this is a misrepresentation of optimism. Um, the optimistic no, 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 view is... Yeah. I am optimistic in the sense that I think things can get incrementally better slowly. But what I mean is, I don't think, I don't think we can, at any point, it's, it's essentially, we are like, um, what's his name? Uh, Sisyphus, pushing, pushing the, the boulder up the cliff. And there is no point at which we get to just stop and have a rest. Uh, we will always be pushing the boulder up the cliff because as soon as we stop pushing, it will roll back and crush us. Uh, and, and, you know, the, I think we are inherently xenophobic as a species. I think we're inherently sexist as a species. I, I think we're inherently misogynistic as a species. Um, and if you don't want those things to dominate society, you will always be fighting. You will always be 
forcing down those impulses, forcing people to conform to a more civilized way of behaving. And it will be force. That's the thing. It will be, I mean, there are different ways to do force. You can do it through education or you can do it through uh, policemen with, with rubber bullets. But ultimately, it's only force that keeps us on the straight and narrow. And that is, that is a brutal and, and, and depressing truth to acknowledge. But I think if we don't acknowledge it, we are in serious trouble. Okay, I, I, um, I think I'm gonna I, I'm I'm gonna stop there because I I, I disagree with almost everything you in the way that you framed that, but um, I think that it's uh, um, um, too too kind of tangential a conversation, and um, I don't really feel like arguing the case right now. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked you about the book that you wish that I had asked you? No, I think you. I think we covered the ground pretty much. I mean, I think uh, we didn't talk very much about the noir tradition and I, the extent to which I, I kind of feel that I'm an inheritor of of a crime writing tradition as well as a science fiction tradition. I think my protagonists have a lot in common with 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 the protagonists of hard boiled American crime fiction. You know, in some sometimes I think they have more in common with that than they do with with you know science fiction per se. Um, but I'm a big fan of mixing genres. I don't. I don't like the the idea that you can divide up your art into you know schools and genres and sub sub genres and and keep everything in a box. I think that's that's you know not productive. Um, but I think I think apart from that, we um, we pretty much. Oh, we never we never covered the. Uh, I tell you what, we didn't cover. We didn't cover the enormous fallout that I got because. I didn't realize, but Altered Carbon was a bit of a, a bit of a sort of um, a, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a banner novel, I guess, for the trans community. A lot of people in the trans community who sort of saw in Altered Carbon a, a, a rejection of the, the physical self and a belief in an a, you know, sort of internal soul, if you like. Um, and it's interesting because when I ended up in a fight with the trans rights activists um, over J.K. Rowling, uh, I had a lot of people on on social media sort of saying, "I can't believe the guy who wrote Altered Carbon, you know, he doesn't believe in gendered souls." And, and I was, it felt a bit like I felt like saying to them, um, "Yeah, I mean, go talk to Anne Rice. I'm pretty sure she doesn't believe in vampires either. You know, it's fucking fiction, man." Uh, <laughs> um, and I think it's interesting because the fiction assumes a level of dualism in the sense that you can be the digitized you is not the physical you you can be transplanted from body to body but i don't i think one of the things that that maybe got missed was the extent to which um your digital self is really only a template to be impressed upon your physical self and you know so you you it's not that I believe a soul exists. I mean, I, you know, it's an interesting thing because when they made the TV show, they really struggled with the idea that there is no soul, uh, you know, because, oh, my God, what's happening to the immortal souls of these of these characters because they're not dying. They're being put into a new body and another new body and another new body. And it was an area that, that the the Americans, you know, really struggled with and wanted to address because obviously religion is so much more of a factor in america and i and i literally i had to say to them i said well there is no what are you talking about there is no soul there is no inner self you know we are we are physical beings that's it we are a product of 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 our you know our genetic coding and the influences that we suffer and the, 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 there's nothing else there's no there's no other here and so yeah it was fascinating watching the number of people who had taken it to be a statement about duality, dualism, and, and a statement about about inner self. 
Um, and I say you, you read out that that chapter right at the beginning about you know waves and sand dunes. I, I thought I'd made it pretty clear that I didn't believe in an inherent essence. Uh, but but yeah, again, uh, people will take from your books exactly what they want to take, and sometimes with a level of obtuseness that is beyond belief, really. Um, but that's good. I mean, that shows yeah. their investment as readers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the same thing applies to the number of people who read the book and uh, came away thinking that that you know that Kovach was a man with a moral code. Uh, you know, and he's saying, oh, you know, I know he's a bit tough and he does some questionable things, but he's a man with a code. And I'm like, is he really? Because I didn't write him with a code. He's a he's a fucking monster. I mean, he's a he's he's a sort of <laughs> he's a cross between the Navy SEALs and the Waffen SS. You know, he's he's not a nice man in any in any shape or form. Mm. And it's and- interesting. I definitely disagree with that. I mean, I think the only thing that I have um, subscribed to that came out of the whole postmodernist movement is the death of the author. Um, yes, I like you very much, post- Richard, but you you are dead. Once yeah, yeah, your book absolutely. was written, you died, and your book yeah. lived in your stead. <laughs> no, no, and I and I say, although I constantly on social media, I, I, I you'll find I have very little time for Pomo, but it's not because I have a problem with Pomo as a literary theory. It's because I think it's metastasized horribly into the real world. But but no, I mean, in terms of literary fiction, absolutely, the book is there. It's an artifact, and each person will take from it what they choose, and I, I have no say in that. But still, I I am. Okay. I mean, it's in a sense, I guess it's like, you know, a tool is you leave a, a tool lying on the ground and people will pick up the tool and they'll do various things with it. Some people may use the tool for, you know, in the way that it was designed. Other people may find a completely different use for it. Some of those uses may be, even be better than the use that the, the tool designer actually had. Mm-hmm. But very often, you know, if a man if a man picks up a knife and says, you know what, this will be really great for hammering posts into the ground. It, <laughs> at that point, you've got to say, whoa, whoa, dead author here. Just a minute. Uh, that's a knife. Uh, um, so there's always a, there's always a relativism to these uh, to these questions, I think. But no, absolutely. I mean, people will take from your work what they'll take from it. There's nothing you can do about it. And mostly I'm quite in, I quite enjoy it because I'm like, Wow, that's something I never saw. Uh, and the fact someone sees something in your work that you didn't see basically means that you did a really good job of creating a facsimile of reality because you've made something that is convincing enough that they start to have their own thoughts and feelings about it that have nothing to do with what you intended. And that's that's yeah. the highest accolade there is for any writer, I think. Um, I think I'm going to end by just reading a another uh, much shorter passage this time. And this is... Uh, your description of um, what it means to be an envoy, uh, which is this elite core of kind of intergalactic um, soldiers that you invented. Yeah, yeah, they are they are souls. They are they are demons. Basically, they are digitized personalities cast on the wind and, and downloaded into whatever flesh they need. Here you go. Just to give just to give people another um, sample. Um, of the book. How much of special forces training is engraved on the physical body and how much in the mind? And what happens when the two are separated? Space, to use a cliche, is big. The closest of the settled worlds is 50 light years out from, from Earth, the most far flung of four times that distance. And some of the colony transports are still going. If some maniac starts rattling tactical nukes or some other biosphere-threatening toys, what are you going to do? 
you can transmit the information via hyperspatial needle cast so close to instantaneously that scientists are still arguing about the terminology. But that, to quote Calchrist um, Falconer, deploys no bloody divisions. Even if you launched a troop carrier the moment the shit hit the fan, the Marines would be arriving just in time to quiz the grandchildren of whoever won. That's no way to run a protectorate. Okay, you can digitize and freight the minds of a crack combat team. It's been a long time since weight of numbers counted for much in a war, and most of the military victories of the last half millennium have been won by small, mobile guerrilla forces. You can even decant your crack DHF soldiers directly into sleeves with combat conditioning, jacked-up nervous systems, and steroid-built bodies. Then what do you do? They're in bodies they don't know, on a world they don't know, fighting for one bunch of total strangers against another bunch of total strangers over causes they've probably never even heard of and certainly don't understand. The climate is different. The language and culture are different. The wildlife and vegetation are different. The atmosphere is different. Shit, even gravity is different. They know nothing. And even if you downloaded them with implanted local knowledge, it's a massive amount of information to assimilate at a time where they're likely to be fighting for their lives within hours of sleeping. That's where you get the Envoy Corps. Neurochem conditioning, cyborg interfaces, augmentation, all this stuff is physical. Most of it doesn't even touch the pure mind, and it's the pure mind that gets freighted. That's where the Corps started. They took psycho-spiritual techniques that Oriental cultures on Earth had known about for millennia, and distilled them into a training system so complete that on most worlds, graduates of it were instantly forbidden by law to hold any political or military office. Not soldiers, no, not exactly. So I think just a little, um, there are a lot of other passages, probably better passages, but I can't find them right now that I could have read. But it just gives you a little illustration of how you kind of, oh, whenever you're talking about, uh, when you're talking about, new technologies, the central technologies of your book, you're always raising the philosophical questions that go along with them. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a great novel. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me, Richard. No, it was a pleasure. It was great. It was, I haven't talked about a lot of this stuff in years, so you know, it was really nice. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.